I'm glad you all are enjoying these new chairs, huh? But some of you are moving around on me. You're messing with me. <laughs> okay. You know, one, one uh, time I had the, what was for me a great uh, pleasure and privilege of meeting the late, great Studs Turkle. Now, that name may not mean much to some of you, but for some of you who've lived in Chicago for a long time, Studs was a fixture. He was a host on his own radio show on WFMT for 45 years. Get that. And he was a great writer. He won the Pulitzer Prize for nonfiction. Well, when I got to visit him there in his living room in Chicago, he, he was surrounded by books and papers. Uh, he just packed a library, and his hair was mussed up a little, kind of like Einstein. And he had his feet up on the ottoman with his trademark bright red socks. I so wished he was smoking his usual cigar, but for some reason he did not light up when we were with him. Now, Studs' great gift was listening to people, how they talked, what they went through. And, uh, for example, one of, his, one of my favorite books of his is called Working, where he interviews people in all different kinds of jobs. And in there, he interviews a spot welder named Phil, uh, who works in a, I think it's a Ford plant in Chicago. There's a Ford assembly plant. Is there still? Anyway. Uh, so Phil says, I stand in the same spot, about two or three feet area, all night. The only time a person stops is when the line stops. We do about 32 jobs per car, per unit, 48 units an hour, eight hours a day. 32 times 48 times eight, figure it out. That's how many times I push the button. Well, based on dozens of interviews like that one, Studs said this. He said, most of us are looking for a calling, not a job. He said, most of us, like the assembly line worker, have jobs that are too small for our spirit. Jobs are not big enough for people. I like what Stud said there. Most of us are looking for a calling. The fact is, there's something in, in, inside us that we're born with that we hunger for purpose. We want our life to count. We want it to matter. Of course we do. And so we hunger, yeah, for a good job. But it's bigger than that. It's for something that we put the word on calling. Nothing else is going to satisfy us. Do you know your calling? Well, tonight, I, I hope this message helps you either find your calling, or maybe you know it, but it'll refresh your calling, or maybe you've, you know your calling, but you're in this totally different or new situation or circumstance that you find yourself in, and maybe this will help you reframe your calling for whatever that is. And to help you with it, I think I just, I'm going to focus on one of the most important truths that you and I could ever know about Jesus Christ. So here, here it goes. I've tried to capture the truth in two short phrases. Simple, you'll, you'll remember it. And the first one is this. He sees you. Jesus sees you. Notice what he does when he's starting his public work. 
He's just getting started. And like one of the first things he does, Mark 1, verse 16, he's walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, which, by the way, is huge. It's like 13 miles long, eight miles across. This is not a pond. This is a very large lake. And there he saw Simon and his brother Andrew throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. So they're in their boat, they're offshore, and they're cast, throwing out cast nets. And Jesus calls out to them, come, follow me, and I'll show you how to fish for people. I'm going to use what, some of what you already have in you, some transferable skills. And they left their nets at once and followed him. The calling of Simon and Andrew starts when Jesus sees them. A little farther up the shore, it says, Jesus saw Zebedee's sons, James and John, in a boat, repairing their nets. He called them at once, and they also followed him, leaving their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men. They leave family, they leave jobs, they leave the family business. This is a big move. Now, once again, what happens is that two people have their lives rewritten. And it starts because Jesus sees them. Now, if you and I were standing there on the shoreline that day and knew nothing of any of their connections, we'd probably think Jesus has never met these guys before and they're leaving everything to follow him. Is it, is, did he just happen to wander down and see them? But actually, Jesus knows them. Simon, for example, has already heard Jesus preach. He was there when Jesus freed a person from these dark and demonic tormenting forces. Okay? And he's already hosted Jesus in his home. And that the night that he had Jesus back for dinner... Peter's mother-in-law was sick, and Jesus took her by the hand and healed her from the fever that she had. So when it says that Jesus was walking down the shoreline and saw Simon and Andrew, it doesn't mean he just happened to see them. It doesn't mean that he took in their appearance. It means he saw something in them. He discerned something about them. He'd already discerned something about them and that's how their calling comes. Jesus sees Simon. Jesus sees Andrew. He sees James. He sees John. And he sees you. Have you really taken in that Jesus sees you? That he, he knows everything about you. He knows stuff about you you haven't told other people. He knows stuff about you that you're not even clear about in, about yourself. There are always those areas that we are blind to in ourselves. Jesus sees those. And he sees something in you that he can work with. Now, Jesus, he sees us very deeply. Uh, he knows what you've been called in life. He sees what you should be called. One day Jesus looks intently at Simon and he says to him, your name is Simon, but from now on, you're going to be called Rock. Peter is Rock in Greek, and that's how he gets the name Peter. 
Jesus is saying, Simon, I'm now calling you Rocky. Because I can build on you. I'm going to build the church that I'm here to build, and I'm going to build it on you. Now, anybody else who was standing there at that moment and happened to hear that, I'm sure they're just like, (laughs) (laughs) Simon is going to be a rock? No, Simon is shifting sand. Simon is impulsive. Simon acts and thinks later. Simon shoots off his mouth. Simon is always getting us in trouble. Simon being a rock. And you know what? For a long time, for a lot of years, it looks like they're right. (laughs) Simon does spout off. And we all know that under pressure, he denies three times he even knows Jesus. But later in his life, Simon lets himself be killed, crucified upside down, rather than deny that he knows Jesus. He finally becomes this person that Jesus saw was in him and that he could become. It's like the shifting sand finally became the rock. Has anyone ever seen something in you that you didn't know you had in you? Maybe it was a teacher. Maybe it was a coach. Maybe it was a boss. Maybe it was a friend. I don't know. Karen has a great story about this, so I've asked her to tell that. All right, Miller, in for Miller. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my junior year in high school, I became part of a group called Explorers, which was the first group of scouts that was male and female. And I met Coach Brown, who led the group, And at the time, like a lot of high schoolers, but I was very insecure, and I didn't know who I was or that I had any gifts. And I didn't think um, that I knew what those gifts were. And for some reason, Coach Brown saw me some leadership gifts and strengths that I didn't know I had. He asked me to be, first of all, on the Explorer's leadership team that summer, and that we were the ones who would plan our activities. And that summer, our group was going to Philmont to backpack. It was thousands of feet up in the Rockies. I didn't think I could do it because I wasn't in very good shape and always struggled with weight. And I thought, there's no way I'm gonna carry a backpack with a tent and supplies and make it through that trip. But Coach Brown challenged me to go. And I went with new hiking boots. (laughs) Let's say they weren't very broken in because I didn't know you were supposed to break in hiking boots because I had never hiked much. So imagine what happens to your hiking boots that aren't broken in. Well, you get blisters. And when you walk all day long, they start to bleed. So one morning I was sitting, putting on my socks Coach Brown walks by and he's like, he called me Koozie. It's my high school nickname. He says, Koozie, what's with your feet? I said, well, blisters, they're bleeding. He said, yeah, you're going back to base camp. I begged him not to send me. But he looked at me and he said, I can't believe that you pushed through these four days 
with feet looking like that. You'll be back in a couple of days. But I want to let you know that you are a super date for being able to do that. When the group got back home, Coach asked me to lead a banquet of 250 people. Now, this included a meal and a program, and I had never done anything like this in my life. And it all came together somehow, and at the end of the banquet, he called me up, and he gave me a gift, a T-shirt that said, Super Dame. <laughs> and I hope to this day I had it, but I kind of wore it out. So Coach Brown gave me permission to lead, and I kept at it through my entire life. And now I stand before you as one of the leaders of Savior, and I do a lot of leadership coaching in my practice. Back to you, Miller. <laughs> I can't top that. <laughs> okay, take what Coach Brown did for Karen and multiply that. And you start to get at what Jesus does for you. He sees you. And then he builds on it. Here's your second phrase. He sees you. He calls you. He sees you and he calls you. Now this should really kind of amaze us that Jesus sees us so deeply and he then calls us. In fact, it's more than that. He recruits us. Recruits us. You know, at the time of Jesus, there were a lot of rabbis and the popular ones had students who chose to follow that rabbi and kind of learn their teachings and their practices. Okay, but it was very clear how it worked. The student chose the rabbi. So sometimes the student would choose a rabbi for a while and then be, I'm kind of done with that and move on to another rabbi. Or sometimes they'd have a couple rabbis. Well, Jesus comes along and he flips it. And he says, no, the rabbi's going to choose the student. And that's why he recruits you. He comes after you. He comes to these fishermen and says, I've got a better plan for your life. And that's why Jesus says to his disciples, you did not choose me, I chose you. He's saying, I flipped it because I wanted you. Jesus once meets uh, a woman, we call her the woman at the well. And after a, after a little bit of conversation, he says, sir, would you go get your husband and come back? And she says, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't have a husband. And he's like, you know, you've really spoken the truth. Because you've had five, and the guy that you're with right now is not your husband. That's good of you to speak, tell us the truth. You know? And the fact that Jesus can see in her and see everything about her life, she tells her friends, he told me everything, <laughs> shakes her up. It wakes her up. And she ends up reaching her, her whole village and bringing them to Jesus Christ. I love that line in the script of the chosen right there where Jesus says to her, I came all the way to Samaria to look for you. He chooses you. He recruits you. He's got something for you to do. It's going to look different for every person. He says to Simon, Andrew, James, and John, follow me. That, he know, they all literally travel with him then for three years. Okay? But the guy that he heals of all the demons, 
That person begs him, Jesus, can I follow you? And he says, no, I want you to go back to your family and I want you to tell them how good I've been to you. So, but whatever call gives, God gives you, you're now working for him. However else you're paying for the bills, you're working for him. And he's got a purpose. Claude Alexander says this. He says, there's a purpose for your being here. You're meant to answer something, solve something, provide something, lead something, discover something, compose something, write something, say something, translate something, interpret something, sing something, create something, teach something, preach something, bear something, overcome something, and in doing so, you improve the lives of others under the power of God for the glory of God. Amen, Claude Alexander. (laughs) Now, here's how you and I apply this amazing truth that Jesus sees you and he calls you. As best as you can discern what Jesus has given you to do, are you doing it? Now, there are a lot of reasons why we might not be. The answer to that question might be not so much. Uh, For me, in my late 30s, I was taking a walk outside one day, and I was praying, and I was thinking about this recurring sense that I had had since I was a teenager and of being called to preach and serve as a pastor. And it was really strange because I was drawn to it, but I also was really afraid of it. And I knew, and and the reason was very simple, I knew I was not the right person for that job. And, uh, well, that day, I saw this hawk, and its wings were not even moving, they're just outstretched, or barely moving, and he's riding the thermals like higher sometimes, and then cruising down a little bit, and going back up like that. And God said to me, if you go to my people, you will soar. Well, that really moved me. I wrote it down in my journal. And then I didn't budge. (laughs) And I'll tell you why. I said, God, I'm an introvert, and pastoring is like a great job if you're an extrovert. Right? And I said, "I, I don't know how to handle church conflict, and I had lived through some that were doozies. And I'm like, I would have no idea what to do with that. So I did nothing. Well, a few years later, without my thinking about it, God shortened it from, if you go to my people, you will soar, to go to my people and you will soar. (laughs) No more conditional promise, man. It's like, command. And I still didn't do it. I said, Lord, I have seen so very few pastors who actually are happy in the work they're doing. And and am I going to be able to support my family? I, I just, I couldn't get it. And then finally... A little bit after that, God said, go. He shortened it all the way down to one word, go. And so I finally went. And he was right, but you know what? I still so often feel surprised and inadequate. You know, it's just, you'd go because he sees it in you, not because you necessarily think it's the right idea. Is God speaking to you and you're dithering because of fear or you know you're not the right person? Or maybe what's holding you up is you don't want to take the risk because every call will cost. I did a sermon on that. And you're not ready for that yet. Maybe you're just too distracted. 
Your life is full of distraction, not focus. Rolling Stone once interviewed Bob Dylan and they, they said to him, you've described your work, uh, you know, what you do, Bob, not as a career, but as a calling. And here's what Dylan said. Everybody has a calling, don't they? But there's a lot of distraction for people, so you might not even find the real you. A lot of people don't. Or maybe what's holding you up from entering fully into the call that God has given you is you would so much rather have that other person's call over there because that call looks so much easier and much more enjoyable than the call you have, right? You you didn't want to be the person who has the call to suffer. You didn't want to be the poster child for perseverance or whatever the call may be. You know, I've had my moments like that too. But you know what? That is a dead end. You have to repent of that. And you have to say, okay, God, you get to choose what my call is, where it is, and what it looks like. I don't. But I'm okay with that. There's a a woman I admire named uh, Kirsten Strand. Karen and I met with Kirsten and her husband years ago. And when we did... uh, my, when we, they came into the restaurant, I was instantly like suburban power couple. And they were. They were both super bright, super high energy. They were living in Naperville. They both had great jobs. And honestly, they looked like the suburban dream. Well, unfortunately for them, Kirsten made the mistake of reading Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger by Ron Sider. And it messed with her. And she says, once I discovered that I had a passion for helping the poor, I had to ask, what am I going to do to help alleviate the poverty that plagues our world? And she says, asking that question raised a lot of anxiety. Because as a new mom with a very comfortable life, thinking about the poor made me feel embarrassed and guilty and helpless. So she says, instead of taking action, I directed my passion at criticizing the church for not working harder to eliminate poverty. I became increasingly angry and bitter and deeply disappointed with life. Finally, after a hospitalization for severe depression, I realized I could not continue to ignore the passion God had given to me. So Kirsten and her family moved into East Aurora from Naperville. And there she founded and led for 15 years a thing called Community 412, Yeah, 412, which is still going. It's called Community Cares, and it's connected with CCC in Naperville. Now she's working at Breakthrough Ministries in Chicago, if some of you know that. But here's what she says. I've learned that ignoring a calling can lead to depression, anger, frustration, and a deep dissatisfaction with life. She says, I've I've learned that following a calling can also lead to moments of depression, anger, frustration, and loneliness. But underneath those feelings, she says, will be this profound sense of peace and satisfaction. When God gives us a passion and a calling, he'll help us do it, but we have to give him the chance. Is it time for you? All right, friends, well, to help us process this, I want to give you a little space to think and pray. And uh, 
And coming off this idea of Jesus seeing you and calling you, I want to invite you to try something that St. Ignatius came up with 500 years ago. He said, before I go to pray, he says, I first think about how, sorry, let me quote this. Think how God our Lord is looking at me. Did you get that? He thinks how God our Lord is looking at me. And do that for 30 seconds or so. And then enter into prayer. I've been trying it this week, and I tell you what, it's been very uh, shaping, shall I say, in how I approach prayer. So what I would like you to do is just make yourself comfortable in your chair. Open yourself to God as much as you can. And then just think about how God our Lord is looking at you.